Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want the best and you got it. The hottest man in the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. And now, on with the show. Welcome, friends, to episode nine of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Christian Swain here, and I am the medium and the message, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. If this is your first time, welcome, and please stick around. Those of you who have been with us for a while, thank you so much, and we hope our first eight episodes were fun and interesting for you. We think of that first group of eight shows as Act One. We've got a long way to go and a lot more to say. We hope you will stay for the whole ride. We didn't tie everything up neatly. That's impossible. But we tried to illustrate. Forces and events have collided. Storylines have converged. And right here in early 1964, we are into something different. With music, with culture, with technology. Things will be heading off in all kinds of directions now. So much to talk about. But first, let's take care of some housekeeping and get things going. First of all, we're very excited to introduce the Rock and Roll Chocolatiers, the pride of Southern Oregon, our friends at Lily Bell Farms. Lily Bell Farms makes an amazing range of sensual, scrumptious, mind-blowing chocolate goodies, exotic caramels, luxury truffles, chocolate bars, and more. Handmade, artisanal, using organically grown fair trade chocolate beans from around the world. They've won all kinds of national and international awards. And friends, from personal experience, I'm telling you, you gotta try Lily Bell Farms chocolate. Also, many friends and family have purchased Lily Bell Farms goodies to use for gifts and they're always a big hit with clients friends or anyone you need to make feel special you can order online or over the phone the service is fast and friendly and they ship everywhere check them out lilybellfarms.com that's l-i-l-l-i-e b-e-l-l-e farms or you can just click through from our website Lily Bell Farms. Life may be sweeter for this. And we'd like to thank you once again for the great feedback and ask you to please 
keep bringing it. We we want your roses, your raspberries, and cut loose with an unhinged rant if you like. All social media can be found at rockandrollarchaeology.com. That's rock, letter N, roll, archaeology, A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. For American listeners, we have a message line, 650-822-ROCK. Leave a cool comment or a good story, and there's a pretty good chance we'll put you in one of our shows. And we've got an amazing, delicious gift from Lilybell Farms for one of our listeners. Click and comment on Facebook or Twitter, or leave a review on iTunes, and you will be automatically entered. You're such a lovely audience, we'd like to take you home with us. I don't really want to stop the show, but I thought you might like to know that our website also has a support the project link. Generosity is a virtue. Let's give a big round of applause to Bob D. from Miami, Florida, Rebecca A. from Walla Walla, Washington, Rory M. from Bristol, UK, and Skip K. from Atlanta once again. We are humbled by your contributions. Also, to the others who gave smaller amounts, thank you. Remember, even a dollar an episode is a great help to produce our shows. And finally, a quick reminder, you can click through from our site to Amazon.com and purchase nearly all the music, films, and books we feature in the show. Your cost will be the same, but Amazon will kick a few pennies our way for the referral. Okay. That takes care of that. So let's get to it. Right now, this is Episode 9, The Medium, The Message, The Music. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day, try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, yeah. We chased our pleasures here, dug our treasures there. But can you still recall the time we cried? Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. We're on the other side into something new with our story and our show. We've established some long story arcs, the British invasion, the beginnings of funk and soul music, women in rock, and these will go forward. But the 60s have arrived, and conventional storytelling is frankly not adequate to the task of describing what happens next. Today's episode will take place mostly in the mid-60s, but we're not following a timeline or building a story. Today's show is a mosaic. We hope to present, in a new light, themes we've brought up before and show these ideas are now spinning off in all directions, scattering like quicksilver under the hammer. We are turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer.
we'll start by meeting someone unlikely. A strange choice for a show about rock and roll. A priggish professor of literature who preferred the cool conversations of jazz to the fevered proclamations of rock. A media scholar, the first media scholar, who loathed popular culture, but who wrote about it with elegance and prescience. In a culture like ours, long accustomed to splitting and dividing all things as a means of control, it is sometimes a bit of a shock to be reminded that, in operational and practical fact, the medium is the message. In operational and practical fact, the medium is the message. Okay, great. Now, can we clear this up a bit and explain what the hell it has to do with rock and roll? We will, but don't expect any help from Marshall McLuhan. The good professor took a puckish delight in presenting enigmatic and multi-layered ideas. With some help, and by doing some thinking out loud, we can unpack this glib, silly tautology that also manages to be a profound synthesis. Hopefully, we won't come across like this guy. The influence of television. Yeah, now, Marshall McLuhan deals with it in terms of it being a, a high a high intensity, you understand, a hot medium. What I would give for a large sock as with horse manure in it. What do you do when you get stuck well, on a movie line with a guy like this behind you? Wait a minute, why can't just, I give my maddening. opinion? This is a free country. He, he can give you. Do you have to give it so loud? I mean, aren't you ashamed to pontificate like that? And, and the funny part of it is, Marshall McLuhan, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's oh, really? work. Really, really. I happen to teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media, and Culture. So I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan will have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so yeah. Just let me, let me, let me, come over here a second. Oh, Tell I, heard, I heard what you're saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong? How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. In 1964, Canadian-born Herbert Marshall McLuhan was 53 years old. He had toiled away mostly unnoticed in academia for decades. He had the pedigree. He went on to Cambridge upon graduation from the University of Manitoba. But Marshall was only a so-so student at Cambridge. He graduated in the second rank and became an academic journeyman, a teaching assistant at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. During the war, he taught report writing to junior officers at a U.S. Army school in St. Louis. After the war, he made his way to the University of Toronto. We especially enjoyed Douglas Kuplin's bio, Marshall McLuhan, You Know Nothing of My Work. It's our primary source for this discussion. Kuplin asserts that Marshall probably fell somewhere on what we now call the autism spectrum. He was undoubtedly brilliant, but Marshall was not at all a linear thinker. Throughout his life, he said things and embraced ideas that can only be described as batshit crazy. In 1962, Marshall McLuhan published his first notable book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, a history and discussion of typography. 
It sold modestly, but was well received by the literati. The Gutenberg Galaxy was where Marshall coined the phrase Global Village. Here in 2016, in our hyper-connected world, this idea may seem trite and obvious, but in 1962, when electronic media was just emerging and digital media was not even a distant dream, well, this was a flash of insight, a startling and original thought, and it was eerily accurate. Marshall McLuhan predicted today's interconnected age almost perfectly, 50 years before it happened. A computer as a research and communication instrument could enhance retrieval, obsolesce mass library organization, retrieve the individual's encyclopedic function, and flip it into a private line to speedily tailor data of a saleable kind. A private line to speedily tailored data of a saleable kind. I think he just described the business model for Google in 1962. He might have been a fussy intellectual snob, prone to paranoia and susceptible to crackpot ideas, but McLuhan's ability to accurately look ahead puts him in some rare company. Great thinkers and polymaths like Pythagoras, Leonardo da Vinci, and H.G. Wells. The Gutenberg Galaxy was only the run-up, the precursor to Marshall's signature work, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man, published in 1964. That's the one that opens up with The Medium is the Message. We're going to unpack that, but before we do, we just want to say, researching Marshall McLuhan took us way down the rabbit hole. It was fascinating. We could spend this entire show parsing his ideas and telling funny and illuminating stories about his life. He is undoubtedly one of the most interesting and infuriating public intellectuals to ever come along. We've linked to some of the better resources we came across in the show notes. So, getting back to it, the medium is the message. Let's push and pull on that a little, and hopefully you will get why we're bringing it up. Actually, we've been bringing it up the whole time. For a while now, we've been saying the larger society affects rock and roll, and rock and roll affects the larger society. That's our big idea, the central assertion of the project. It's a very McLuhan-esque construct. So, if you've been listening and taking that in, if you understand that and feel it, then you've a good grasp of what Marshall was trying to get across. The medium and the message, the relationship and the connection, the music and the culture and the technology. They affect each other. They are each other. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, no shit, Sherlock. Well, hey, I don't blame you thing about this, though, the medium is the message is not a law or formula like E equals MC squared. It's a wheel, a widening gyre that spins off discussions. It's an invitation to brainstorm. The medium is the message also tells us to pay attention, to look beyond the obvious, and understand that media, the extensions of man, 
Amplify and accelerate existing processes. Amplify and accelerate. Turn it up. Speed it up. Or, to use a more famous, or infamous depending on your perspective, to use another formulation, turn on, tune in, drop out. Leaden winter would bring you down forever, but you rode upon a steamer to the violence of the sun. If the psychedelic story had a hundred beginnings, at some point all the plot lines converged on Basel, Switzerland, at a few minutes before five on the afternoon of Monday, April 19th, 1943. That's a quote from one of the best books we've encountered Storming Heaven, LSD and the American Dream by Jay Stevens. In the opening chapter, Stevens introduces another unlikely character in this rock and roll story we tell, a stolid and bespectacled family man, a petite bourgeois intellectual employed as a chemist at Sandoz Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Albert Hoffman first synthesized lysergic acid dithylamide back in 1938. It was the 25th in a series of compounds he had derived from ergot, a fungus that grows on diseased rye. He thought one of these compounds might have therapeutic value treating migraine headaches. Initial tests were not promising, so he moved on to other work. LSD-25 was shelled for five years until the spring of 43, when Dr. Hoffman had what he described as a peculiar presentiment and decided to make a new batch. He was exposed accidentally to a tiny amount, probably through the skin. In his written report for his supervisor at Sandoz, he described the effects. An uninterrupted stream of fantastic images of extraordinary plasticity and vividness accompanied by an intense kaleidoscope play of colors. He felt fine the next day, so Dr. Hoffman decided to confirm that it was, indeed, exposure to LSD-25 that caused the fireworks. The following Monday, April 19th, 1943, Dr. Hoffman and his lab assistant dissolved what they thought was a tiny safe amount, 250 micrograms, in a glass of water. At about 4.20 p.m., he drank it down. Nowadays, it's common knowledge among trippers that 250 mics is a hefty dose. It only takes about 20 micrograms of LSD to produce psychoactive effects. 100 mics is more like it for a recreational dose, maybe twice that if you're feeling brave. What Albert Hoffman did not know is that he had synthesized and ingested the most powerful psychoactive substance ever discovered. And that is still true today, seven decades later. A microgram is a mere one millionth of a gram. For perspective, take a quick look in your medicine cabinet. Most of the substances in there prescription or non-prescription, have recommended dosages in the hundreds of milligrams. 100 milligrams is 400 times the size of the dose Dr. Hoffman ingested. 250 micrograms is a tiny, tiny amount. 
a pinpoint. But angels danced on the head of that pin. I've got a bike, you can ride it if you like. It's got a basket, a bell, and rings and things to make it look good. I'd give it to you if I could, but I borrowed it. You're the kind of girl that fits in with my world. I'll give you anything, everything, if you want things. Jay Stevens takes up the story. At five o'clock, he recorded a growing dizziness, some visual disturbance, and a marked desire to laugh. Forty-two words later, he stopped writing altogether. Then he climbed onto his bicycle and pedaled off into a suddenly anarchic universe. understand well what the good doctor was going through. Dr. Albert Hoffman was peaking, tripping balls, as the youngsters would say. Veteran trippers know that you just have to ride it out until you hit a plateau, a pleasurable, psychedelic, steady state that lasts for six hours or so before fading. But this was the first intentional LSD trip anyone had ever taken. Dr. Hoffman had no context in which to place this experience. Stevens again. So, uh, are you his thoughts moving at a thunderous clip, Hoffman wondered if he had permanently damaged his mind. Compounding his distress was the fact that his wife and children were visiting in the country. What if they returned and found not Papa, but a lunatic? a cautionary footnote in the history of psychopharmacology. Eventually, Dr. Hoffman did settle in and write it out. And the next day, he felt no ill effects. In fact, he felt wonderful. He could remember everything, and he felt like he had gained new awareness or learned something. As Jimi Hendrix would write and sing nearly 25 years later, experienced, not necessarily stoned, but beautiful. An ephemeral, ineffable change had occurred, and it had worked on him from the inside out. Astonishing. Good-working scientist that he was, Herr Dr. Albert Hoffman filed a full report. Sandoz Laboratories decided to fund and organize further research into lysergic acid dithylamide. We can't resist. 
Here's another quote from Jay Stevens' amazing book. The most prophetic test, although no one realized this at the time, was the one with the chimps. One day, Rothlin injected LSD into a lab chimp and then reintroduced the animal to its colony. Within minutes, the place was in an uproar. The chimp hadn't acted crazy or strange per se. Instead, it had blithely ignored all the little social niceties and regulations that govern chimp colony life. It was indeed prophetic. Hoffman and the other researchers found out right away LSD can produce flashes of insight. And that with chimps and humans alike, it's a powerful dose of nonconformity. Something about it just makes a person want to ignore or laugh uproariously at the absurdity, the hypocrisy, the bullshit that is so much of everyday life. We're going to call it a new medium, one that carries its own message, that amplifies and accelerates existing processes. It works from the inside out. To use a turn of phrase Marshall McLuhan might favor, you're soaking in it, and you're soaking it in. talking about one person i'm talking about everybody i'm talking about form i'm talking about content i'm talking about interrelationships i'm talking about god the devil hell heaven do you understand finally from its origin in a swiss laboratory LSD, Dr. Albert Hoffman's problem child, took a long, strange trip of some 20 years duration. That trip brought LSD into the spinning center of the widening gyre, into the middle of the mad maelstrom of the 1960s. We'll skim over much of it, and we really wish we didn't have to. It's a crazy, convoluted story, by turns infuriating and hilarious. Again, we recommend Stevens' book as well as The Electrocoolate Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. It starts with the psychologists. During and immediately after the Second World War, the field of psychology underwent explosive, unprecedented growth, especially in America. This was a consequence of wartime necessity as the U.S. built a massive armed force to deal with the fascist menace, some 20 million inductees had to be evaluated, sorted, and, hopefully, assigned to tasks that fit their talents. For the first time, generous funding was available for psych research. Tools for evaluating and categorizing personality and intelligence were developed and widely used. Personality tests, tests of intelligence 
tests of vocational aptitude. These first testing instruments were crude and incomplete, even laughable in light of what we know today. But important just the same, they were the first large-scale attempt to use scientific method to understand what makes us human, what makes us who we are. One of those wartime psych researchers was a Timothy Francis Leary. Post-war, Timothy Leary settled into the academic life. He attained his doctorate and took a post as assistant professor of psychology at the University of California, San Francisco. In 1955, the Kaiser Family Foundation hired him as director of psychiatric research. Professional academics worked their entire lives in pursuit of a gig like this. Title, prestige, and best of all, funding. But even as he settled into this cozy academic sinecure, there in the promised land of California, Tim was restless, unhappy, in search of something. Surely his own mercurial character was a part of this, but there was more. For the bright and the sensitive, an objective, eyes-wide-open examination of the modern world was troubling in the extreme. Humanity had endured the mass savagery of industrial age warfare, organized genocide in Europe, cities full of people obliterated in a Promethean flash of atomic fire. And all of that horror hadn't really resolved anything. Malignant dark forces were still at work in America, the panic of McCarthyism, the perpetuation of institutionalized racism. When will they ever learn? asked the folk singer Pete Seeger, himself a victim of blacklisting. In 1958, Tim learned that the grant money gravy train at Kaiser was grinding to a halt. After taking a year off and a failed attempt to write the great American novel, Tim took a post as a lecturer in psychology at Harvard. Once again, the indispensable Jay Stevens. Leary loved Harvard's mental voltage. Everywhere you turned, there were minds capable of striking lightning but he also chafed at the snobbish noblesse oblige of the place. The arrogance, the fatuous certainty that whatever Harvard decided was right, was right. Harvard brought out the outsider in Leary, and he delighted in pricking the pomposities of his colleagues. Tim was a smash at Harvard. Handsome, articulate, and riotously funny. He was an academic rock star, a Pied Piper to the starry-eyed undergrads who packed the lecture hall. He lectured to war babies and early boomers, fellow searchers, the vanguard of the vast baby boom, smart, affluent, restless, and raised on rock and roll. At Harvard, Tim found two kindred spirits, a pair of brilliant and unconventional academics, 
Professors Richard Alpert and Ralph Metzner. Both of these men were early adopters of and advocates for this incredibly potent new drug developed in wartime Switzerland, LSD. In 1960, the three psychologists started researching psychedelics and their effects. Psilocybin, or magic mushrooms at first, but soon they turned their attention to LSD. One pill makes you larger, and one pill makes you small. And the ones that mother gives you... The Harvard Psilocybin Project was funded by Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World and The Doors of Perception. Huxley was possessed of a luminous, wide-ranging intelligence, the consummate British intellectual. Very early on, he was convinced that LSD could bring insight, spirituality, that it could be a valuable shortcut to the raising of consciousness. Professor Huston Smith, a renowned religious studies scholar, was involved in the project as a test subject. He would describe it in later years as a serious and conscientious effort. But there was adverse publicity and a devastating backlash. In 1962, Harvard University abruptly terminated the project, along with three once-promising academic careers. Leary, Albert, and Metzner ended up in Mexico. Tim took LSD there for the first time. And with the zeal of the newly converted, he went from LSD researcher to LSD evangelist. The three of them cribbed ideas from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and incorporated them into a slim handbook for the raising of consciousness, The Psychedelic Experience, published in 1964. Here's a quote from the introduction, and it's going to come up again soon, and in a big way. Whenever in doubt, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. was some heady stuff for a rock and roll show. We got more to tell, but for now, let's change things up a bit. We're going to look at some old things in a new way. In earlier episodes, we talked about new technologies and how they made rock and roll possible how they made rock and roll inevitable, the transistor radio, the 45 RPM record, and the high-capacity jukebox came up early in episode one. 
In episode two, we discuss the explosive growth of television and its synergistic relationship with the rise of rock and roll. We learned that a California company, Ampex, came out with the first videotape recorder in 1956. This made tape delay, coast-to-coast broadcasting, possible without significant loss of quality. All along, Ampex was also improving and refining machines for audio recording. More about that in a minute. And in the third show, we met Buddy Holly, who was a bit of an innovator in the recording studio. Buddy went way beyond using the recording studio to merely recreate an environment. He used the studio musically like another instrument. It's just a small step from there to use the recording studio to fully create a sound environment that is entirely artificial. By the way, we use the word artificial here the same way an archaeologist might, pertaining to an artifact, something human-made that does not occur in nature. Some examples, because, hey, why not? It's fun, and it helps to illustrate the point. I want to put your headphones on right about now. Recording in stereo gives one the ability to move the sound, move it around. Or reverb can take you out of the studio and into a giant cathedral. Or tape delay echo can take you from a tile-walled bathroom to the Grand Canyon and back again. Or just combine some of them and get something completely new that sounds awesome. Things were improving fast on the consumer end as well. All through the 50s, the industrial process of pressing music onto a vinyl disc had been slowly and steadily improving. By the time we hit the early 60s, the long-play stereo record, the album, is now a viable format, technically and commercially. And record players are improving as well. Stereophonic and high fidelity are no longer terms of art for recording engineers. They are catchphrases for advertisers. So, doubling back a little, remember Ampex. Well, in 1958, they built the first commercially sold 8-track reel-to-reel audio tape recorder. The first one off the line was sold to the guitar legend and innovator Les Paul. Tom Dowd bought the second one, and he installed it at Atlantic Records' main recording studio in New York City. Way back in episode one, we briefly met Tom. We described him as an easygoing, diffident, and absolutely brilliant young recording engineer who recorded the mess around with Ray Charles in 1953. It was the first of many legendary records he would engineer and produce.
piece of jazz sophistication is Giant Steps, the title cut from John Coltrane's terrific 1960 album, recorded at Atlantic by Tom Dowd. It's a groundbreaking, influential composition. The clip we played earlier, Eight Miles High by The Birds, that opening guitar solo is clearly inspired by Coltrane. Tom Dowd was gifted with a fine musical ear, and he had an open-minded and eclectic outlook. He was also a technological innovator. Years ahead of everyone else, Tom adopted three things as standard practices. He recorded to tape. Using multiple tracks, he used the studio to create artificial sound environments, and he recorded everything in stereo. Tom invented faders, those long vertical volume controls that are now on every mixing console that is built. Tom was a pianist. He would play those sliding faders two-handed like another instrument while recording and mixing his artists. Heretofore, all recording equipment had been hand-me-down radio equipment. It was all radio stations selling stuff off that people would buy and adapt to recording purposes. So I started building... Atlantic's first 8-track console. And we had the big knobs. It was three inches in diameter. And uh, you'd sit there, and, and, and all of a sudden you, get, you, you couldn't get but two or three under your hands to manipulate them, one with a finger here. And this is most inaccurate. It was just plain stupid. So I found that there was a manufacturer that was making slide wires, faders that instead of being cylindrical were linear and traveled about five inches. Uh, and you could just run your finger up and down. So I eliminated all the stupid three-and-a-half-inch knobs, and I put in the slide wires. So let's recap. It's the mid-60s. In the studio, we've got these new media, these new extensions that amplify and accelerate existing processes. Multitrack to tape, artificial sound environments and effects, everything in stereo. And on the consumer end, you've got the LP record album, a high-quality format that can be mass-produced, shipped, and sold worldwide. High-quality sound systems are now widely available for consumers as well. And finally, you've got a bunch of smart rock and rollers who are just now coming of age. They grew up, for the most part, as outsiders. Searchers and seekers with little regard for convention or standard practices. They're not alone in feeling that way, and they've got access to an explosive new medium that can instantly carry a message to millions. And they're about to drop acid and play with all these new toys. Deceive me now, here's a surprise. I know that you have, cause there's magic in my eyes. I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. One day. In 1964, Jim Marshall delivered me an amplifier system I was reasonably happy with. A 45-watt amp that had a crisp American sound, but when you turned it up, it screamed like a Spitfire. That essential British war machine. Sleek, simple, 
undefeatable. I bought two and used one to drive each of my speaker stacks of eight 12-inch speakers. That's Pete Townsend from the audiobook version of his memoir, Who I Am, published in 2013. Guitars and amps have come a long way, too. Two guys out in California, tinkers and experimenters, have developed good, strong designs for electric guitars. They are of high quality, but they also can be produced on an assembly line. Leo Fender and Les Paul had an interesting relationship. They were fierce business competitors, and they were also good friends and mutual admirers. They almost became business partners at one point. They had both started building, refining, and improving electric guitars back in the late 40s. Leo Fender at his own shop, while Les Paul licensed out his designs to Gibson. The Fender Stratocaster, the Gibson Les Paul, the Fender Precision Bass. By 64, these were mature, mass-produced designs, and they were available for a reasonable price at any music shop on either side of the Atlantic. And at the urging of Pete Townsend and other rock guitarists in London, Jim Marshall started building truly high-powered guitar amps that pumped out 100 watts or more into multiple four-speaker cabinets. These weapons is how Pete described the soon-to-be-famous Marshall Stack. Most aficionados of the electric guitar are familiar with the trio of Les Paul, Leo Fender, and Jim Marshall. Their stories have been well told elsewhere. There's one more innovator from those years who is often overlooked, so we want to give props to a man from California by way of Kalamazoo, Seth Lover. Seth holds the patent for the double-coil pickup, or humbucker, he also invented the first Fuzzbox, an inline signal distortion device for guitarists. It was called the Veritone. It was introduced by Gibson in 1961. The Veritone would have many offspring. Just about every guitarist, famous or not, has some kind of Fuzzbox based on the Veritone design. Seth's double coil pickup had two advantages. It canceled out, or bucked, the hum that single-coil designs were prone to, and the twin coils produced a much stronger signal. Seth's humbucker pickups, to this day, are standard equipment on Gibson Les Paul guitars. There's a man who leads a life of danger Everyone he meets, he stays a stranger With every move he makes, another chance he takes Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow Secret agent man, secret agent man Back to our story of psychedelics and psychologists Right here, it takes a dark and troubling turn. 
And where it all ends up is just deliciously ironic. We think so anyway. In the opening years of the 50s, during the Korean War, American prisoners were subjected to harsh interrogations and extreme psychological stress. They were tortured. Predictably, some of these men broke and told their tormentors what they wanted to hear. True or not. Some of these, quote, confessions, unquote, were filmed and released as propaganda by the newly empowered communist government in China. Now, one could apply common sense and realize that extreme duress can make even a brave, resolute person say and do just about anything. But many Americans, egged on by fear-mongering in the press and by opportunistic politicians, jumped to an unfounded, paranoid conclusion. The communists had developed sinister new techniques of mind control. A new term entered the lexicon, brainwashing. Films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Manchurian Candidate were big hits. Clearly, this idea struck a deep and fearful chord in the American psyche. It still does. In response, starting in 1953, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency decided to take the study of psychology over to the dark side. Ostensibly, Project MKUltra was funded and organized by the CIA to find ways to understand and counter these alleged brainwashing techniques the commies had supposedly developed. In reality... The CIA wanted to develop its own brainwashing techniques. Some of the research was done well and produced interesting and entirely unexpected findings. And some of it was shockingly immoral, sadistically using American citizens as guinea pigs without any kind of informed consent. This is all backed up by sworn testimony from numerous MKUltra researchers and participants and by CIA documents obtained decades later under the Freedom of Information Act. It wasn't long before MKUltra started experimenting with LSD. It was the most powerful psychoactive agent known, and it was legally available from Sandoz Laboratories for research purposes. A shell corporation was set up, providing contracts and grant money, along with access to plenty of LSD to academic researchers. One of those contracted projects took place south of San Francisco at Stanford University in the late 50s. Trace of my face could see 
Ken Kesey was enrolled at Stanford in a graduate program for promising young writers. Like many a broke grad student, Kesey, everybody called him by his last name, Kesey would earn a small stipend by participating in research projects as a test subject. Throughout 1958, as part of a study funded by MKUltra, Kesey was fed a pharmacopoeia of mind-altering substances, including peyote, psilocybin, and LSD. Jay Stevens takes up the story. By midsummer of 1959, Kesey was working at the Veterans Hospital as a psychiatric aide. He worked the graveyard shift. When the hospital was deserted and the medicine cabinet was wide open for anyone who wanted to borrow an experimental chemical or two. He was working on a novel, but Kesey abruptly abandoned it and started writing a new one. You see, one night, as he pushed his mop around the silent mental ward, gacked out of his skull on hallucinogens, Kesey got a visit from the muse, bearing him two gifts. First, the idea of using a mental hospital as a metaphor for the larger society. Second, the character of Chief Bromden, a huge, silent, and docile Native American, would narrate the story. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was published in 1962. It was an immediate hit with critics and with the public. Kesey cashed the royalty checks and got off the beaten track up among the redwoods in La Honda, California. Before long, poets and writers, rockers and researchers, wannabes and hangers-on, they would all end up at Kesey's. Try on your wings and find out where it's at. He was a McMurphy figure who was trying to get them to move off their own snug harbor dead center out of the plump little game of being ersatz daring and ersatz alive, the middle class intellectuals game, and move out to Edge City, where it was scary, but people were whole people, and if drugs were what unlocked the doors and enabled you to do this thing and realize all this that was in you, then so let it be. That's the writer Tom Wolfe introducing Kesey in the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, published in 1968. Tim and the psychologists were down Mexico way, storming heaven, using LSD as a shortcut to spirituality, a way to read the divine mind. Up in La Honda, Kesey and his entourage, who dubbed themselves the Merry Pranksters, well, they decided to use LSD as a catalyst for some truly epic parties. Sure, there was insight and creativity to be found in a tab of orange sunshine. Kesey had demonstrated that with a best-selling novel that became a Broadway hit. But there was also music, fun, sex, howling laughter, and maniacal dancing that lasted from dusk till dawn. 
the pranksters were the original rave kids. Kesey footed the bill for a fantastic light and sound system. He found chemists from Berkeley and Stanford to synthesize an ample supply. He found a local band, the Warlocks, who would soon change their name to the Grateful Dead to provide a trippy, jammy soundtrack. Mix up the electric Kool-Aid, pass the cup around, see who could pass the acid test. Musicians, roadies, industry types would come through, party and play, and pick up a supply. Out on tour they would go, electric evangelists. Tours would cross over each other, spreading the LSD gospel further, into the heartland, out across the water, and back again. By the beginning of 1965, rock musicians in America and the UK were soaking in it, and their audiences were soaking it in. Trees, ocean breeze, every prospect does surely please. 1965 begins, and we head south to the Hollywood Hills. At first glance, one would think that 22-year-old Brian Wilson and his pretty young wife Marilyn were living the Southern California dream. Over the last three years, Brian had written and arranged a string of fun, fluffy Beach Boy hits for Capitol Records, and now he had the house in the hills with the stunning view to show for it. Brian was, still is, a giant musical talent, but by his own telling, he is painfully neurotic and insecure, prone to stage fright and panic attacks. As a consequence, he had stopped touring. He was content, well, sort of content, to stay behind in Los Angeles and compose songs while the other guys hit the road. In early 65, Brian dropped LSD for the first time. Visions of Fantasia, sight became sound, musical notes took visual shape. In April, he recorded California Girls, doing most of the backing tracks himself with the help of the Wrecking Crew, a group of crack L.A. session musicians. The other Beach Boys dropped in to do the vocals in between tour dates. In his fine 2006 biography, Catch a Wave, the rise, fall, and redemption of the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson, Peter Ames Carlin writes... As Brian continued to write and record through the first months of 1965, his work took on the ecstatic feeling of the Fantasia-like staff of music he imagined floating in his druggy daydreams. For a time, it seemed like anything was possible. California Girls, intended to be a sunny anthem for the summer of 65, could begin with an orchestral prelude as spare and stirring as anything by Aaron Copland. 
We love Aaron Copeland, and it's a flattering comparison, but Carlin is a bit off the mark here. That instrumental prelude really owes a lot more to Johann Sebastian Bach. Some Bach, and then some rock. Awesome. Hey, all you fans of progressive rock, yes, Genesis, Pink Floyd, Rush, that is rock inspired by classical composers, take note of this moment and of what's about to happen. It starts here with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair I hear the sound of a gentle On the wind that lifts her perfume through the air The original teenage anthem to God, writes Scott Miller in his really fun and useful 2011 book, Music, What Happened? So much to unpack here, the twilight zone whistle of the theremin, that lovely baroque singing near the end, the counterpoint bass line from the incomparable Carol Kay. And the scale of it, the symphonic progression and sheer ambition of this song, it's outstanding. Astonishing. But, you know what? I'll resist the urge to pull it apart. And instead, let's just sit back and let it unfold. Write it out. All the components, all the parts are great, but what's incredible here is the totality of it. It just vibrates through you and wraps itself around you. Early on in today's discussion, we talked about Marshall McLuhan's axiom, the medium is the message. It is sometimes a bit of a shock to be reminded of that, Marshall said in the lead up to the idea. Indeed, we are accustomed to dividing and categorizing things as a way of understanding. Let's take it apart and figure out how it works. We're not knocking that classical scientific approach, not even a little bit. It is a tremendous engine for human progress. At this very moment, as you listen to this podcast, you are hopefully enjoying one of the many fruits of the scientific method and the technology it has enabled. But as we hinted at just a moment ago when we discussed good vibrations, In this case, the analytic approach comes up short. To really get it, you have to just immerse yourself in the medium. Let the message wash over you and around you. Let it go through you. Then, and only then, can you receive it. Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream.
once again, the Beatles have ended an era and ushered in the new. Brian Wilson integrated classical influences with rock, and it was brilliant. Brian mined the work of well-known Western composers, Bach, Brahms, Copeland, and so on. The Beatles moved way beyond that. They looked to the East, to the drone and pedal tone of Indian music. That came from George Harrison and his interest in the sitar music of Ravi Shankar. John Lennon's mystic, cryptic lyric pulls its ideas from the Tibetan Book of the Dead by way of Timothy Leary's book, The Psychedelic Experience. Tomorrow Never Knows has Western influences too, but not the stately progressions of Bach or the sweet melodies of Brahms. Paul McCartney had become interested in the avant-garde, radical new ideas about the form and shape of music from the likes of John Cage and Carl Heinz Stockhausen. And like he always does, Ringo Starr keeps it all nailed down with some of his best recorded work, that churning, propulsive beat underneath a psychedelic wash of cymbals. As a pure sound event, Tomorrow Never Knows remains exhilarating. Yet it is easy, decades later, to underestimate its original cultural impact. Part of this is due to an intervening change in Western musical habits. That's Ian MacDonald from his 2007 book, Revolution Head, The Beatles, Music in the 1960s. MacDonald is making the point that the drone and trance feel of Tomorrow Never Knows is now commonplace in popular music. It takes some imagination to go back to 1966 and feel how completely different this was at the time. I called out to progressive rock fans a little earlier. Now I'm calling to fans of trance music and electronica, all you ravers out there. All that starts right here. There's a lot of musicology written about this song. Lots of detailed analysis. We've linked to some good sources in the show notes. Please go get them. But again, we don't want to analyze it in detail. We simply try to provide context. We look at the broad sweep of history and the history of the larger culture it influences and is influenced by. That's our thing. In that context, Tomorrow Never Knows is revolutionary. Some musicologists have called it the most important single event in all of recorded music. We do not disagree. We talked about Arrival in Episode 8. Well, this is a big arrival. And this is a big departure. This is a new medium. This is a new message. It's of the beginning. I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. So nice of you to stop by today. Thank you. And please come back for more in episode 10. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. 
and we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day, so were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.